Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. It's not every day the scientific discovery is made that challenges what we thought about something, but that's the case when a team from Franklin and Marshall College studied the source of the spring that supplies water to the lake in Boiling Springs, Cumberland County. The source of the water is some 50 miles away in Maryland and has to travel through 10 types of rock. The finding challenges what scientists believe about groundwater flow. And we're talking science today and groundwater flow. We talk about this fairly often when we uh, we're talk about uh, a lot of times having to do with natural gas and that kind of thing. But a science segment on Smart Talk today. Joining us is Dr. Robert Water, Associate Professor of Geoscience. Dr. Tim Beidel, Adjunct Assistant Professor of Geoscience, both at Franklin and Marshall College. And Jake Longenecker, who was a student researcher and played a very important role in this discovery. And uh, he also is a, a student at F&M. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We know that our listeners are very interested in science. And uh, again, this is a discovery that you don't come upon every day. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, I'm going to start with uh, Boiling Springs itself, the bubble at Boiling Springs. Why study the bubble at Boiling Springs? It's been a bit of a mystery for a long time. Uh, We've known since the 1980s from some work that the Pennsylvania Geologic Survey did that there's more water coming out of the bubble than falls in the watershed that surrounds the bubble. So we've known for a long time that the water was coming from somewhere unexpected. And uh, uh, Bob has been studying the geology around the bubble for several years. He's worked with some students. Uh, I got some students involved in looking at the bubble, ultimately ending up with uh, Jake really taking over this project. And what we've been looking at is not only where might the water be coming from, but how does it get to the bubble? Because it has to come from somewhere on the other side of a ridge or a mountain. It's coming from a different watershed. So we were casting about for ways to figure out where the water was coming from. Okay, for those who don't know, I mean, now uh, the lake at... uh uh, Boiling Springs is one of the treasures of central Pennsylvania. Many people in Cumberland County and central Pennsylvania are very familiar with it, but describe it if you would. Uh, the, the bubble, it's actually, there are a series of springs. Uh, there are a number of springs that feed the children's lake. The bubble is the largest of these, and it's inside a stone wall and enclosure behind the Boiling Springs Tavern. And it's it's really a very well-known local landmark. Probably a lot of people listening right oh, now absolutely. know exactly what the bubble is. Mm-hmm. I used to bicycle there when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, what made you want to study the bubble, though? Now, you said that, uh, Bob, that you had done uh, uh, research over a few years there. Yeah, it started about five, six years ago. Um, Tim and I and uh, a bunch of our colleagues have been working on a model of looking at groundwater flow. Um, in a, a non-traditional sense, and as, uh, we're looking mainly at fracture, at, at fluid flow through fractures, and we thought that Boiling Springs, given the geological setting of it, uh, was an ideal test case for this hypothesis that we were testing. And so I had a bunch of students uh, studying the, the basically the rock mechanics of the of the geological formations around Boiling Springs. Tim joined the project about uh, two or three years ago, and had some students put some sensors. Uh, in the in the in the spring itself, and we didn't know what we were going to find with the sensors. But one of the sensors was a, a, a pressure transducer that measures the increase in the hydraulic head as the spring uh, discharges, and that's what Jake really came into play here. And he began to interpret this this pressure data and real, realized that there was a signal here that was was really meaningful. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about uh, the the practical uses of this and. 
actually what you did dis- discover in just a moment. But I do want to bring uh, Jake Longenecker into the conversation right now. As I said uh, in our opening, that Jake, you played a, a major role in the discovery here. Talk about, uh, first of all, what is your major? What are you looking to do for, career-wise? So I have I, I graduated from Franklin and Marshall, uh, the geoscience department, in 2017, mm-hmm. um, just a few months ago. Um, major in geoscience, but I plan to go to grad, graduate school for hydrogeology. Okay. So that's what you, you want to do. That's yeah, going to be your career. That is correct. And okay. I, that's why I really got into this. Um, in early 2015, I went to Tim. Um, asking him if I could do research of any kind, really. I wanted to get more involved. Um, classes are one thing, but I really found it important to to get a hands-on experience, especially in the field of geology. Um, so in early 2015, I went to Tim, and as Bob had mentioned, um, they had been doing work on the bubble for quite a while, and uh, there was a big question of where is the water coming from. Um, so uh, there were water sensors that were put into the bubble, and over the course of about two years, we had collected data um, which was seemingly conflicting coming from the bubble, different types of parameters that didn't really seem to mesh with each other. Um, so over over the course of two years, uh, we we threw around a bunch of different hypotheses of, of how the water was flowing, and we really had to. Uh, we eventually turned to satellite data, a new a new um, GPM um, satellite that was launched by NASA that measured precipitation around the world. To, to answer this question. When I say you played an important role, uh, let's kind of take a step back. Uh, you were, you've used the word hypothesis a couple times. What was your hypothesis going in? I mean, did you have thoughts going in as to, okay, where's this water coming from? You had your opinions, and then you were surprised? Is that how to describe it? Pretty close. In fact, nearly everybody has had a hypothesis about where the water in the bubble is coming from. The locals, uh, we've heard so many different uh, ideas about this. Some people say it comes from the Finger Lakes. And, you know, it's it's easy to dismiss these as silly, but it turns out that the truth is just as silly <laughs> as, as what some people have long believed. Um, I think probably the, the, our, our first really strong hypothesis, Jake better tell this story, because uh, uh, Jake was the one who made kind of a key observation on a nice sunny day at the bubble. Do you know what I'm well, talking about, Jake? Yeah. Um, oh, can I stop you for just one second? Sure. I didn't want to go back to, you said that a lot of the locals thought that the water was coming from the Finger Lakes. Why did they think that? Well, the Finger Lakes just is an, an example. Uh, oh, nobody, okay. No scientific evidence whatsoever, just that people Well, people thought. reported, uh, have reported various evidence, lines of evidence, but, uh, you know, different people had different theories, different hypotheses about where it came from, um, and we didn't we really didn't know we had no idea it was what we that's exactly what we wanted to figure out and we were not really quite sure how to go about it bob had done a lot of work mapping the geology and the fractures and that was giving us some idea of where the water might be coming from if it's traveling along the fractures and we know their orientation maybe it's traveling from somewhere far out along one of these fractures uh, but we didn't really have a good hypothesis until the day Jake was out there and had a bit of a mental breakthrough. Okay, good. What was your mental breakthrough, Jake? Well, if we back up a little bit, sometimes in geology, um, as well as other sciences, personal observation um, can can play a, a very important role in how you go about uh, designing your methods. So one day I was out there, and, and I, I was in the spring. I was making, at the time, about weekly trips out there to measure outflow from the spring. And I, I the water level began to quickly rise. And it wasn't raining anywhere in sight. In fact, I couldn't see clouds anywhere in sight. Um, so that posed a, a few questions. One, why is the water rising? And two, well, if it's rising, there must be water coming from somewhere, or there must be some sort of back pressure creating a, a rise in water I mean, level. you actually could see and or feel the water rising. That, yeah, correct. Yes. I mean, that's unusual in itself, isn't it? I mean, because most of the time, unless you're uh, in a small creek or something like that, but in a in a body of water like a lake, to see the water rising, you know that that's unusual, or at least it would seem so. And 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 it was, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess the the whole lake level wasn't rising that quickly, but inside the weir, inside the wall that surrounds the bubble spring, mm-hmm. the water oh, was okay, rising okay. was rising very quickly on a sunny day. So. 
the source of the water, there was water, clearly water was entering the system somewhere. And this is when we realized that if we could find out where it was raining on the day or the day before Jake was standing there as the water level rose, if we could find out where it had just rained, that might tell us where the water was actually coming from. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it happened, right? It was raining in Maryland. <laughs> Down near the here. Maryland border, yeah. It, it took a while to get there, but it, it that's exactly how it turns out. When it rains... Down near the Pigeon Hills, down near the Maryland border, the water level in the bubble rises very quickly. And when I say that uh, Jake played an important role, his observation, you actually were standing in the water, right? Uh, Yeah, I was there when it happened, yeah. I had been making weekly trips to get in the water, yeah. But were the two of you there when this... No, the, the, no. So you had to believe him, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yes, and then, and then we looked at the data. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we <laughs> believed Jake and the sensors. <laughs> oh, the sensors are the That's backup true. to Jake, to Jake's observation. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Pigeon Hills, I'm not familiar with that, that area. Where, where exactly is that? It's near Maryland Mountains, right? Yeah, yeah it's down... It's uh, south southeast of Boiling Springs. But the interesting, the, the, the craziest part about the whole thing is it's on the opposite side of South Mountain. So the, the place, uh, ultimately where we figured out it rains and then the bubble surges, the location where it rains to cause that is on the other side of South Mountain. Mm-hmm. So this is where Bob's uh, work on this kind of uh, interesting groundwater flow comes into play. There has to be a pathway for the water to travel essentially under a mountain, and we don't typically expect that in, in hydrogeology. Well, that was my next question, is that one of the things that makes this so unusual is that it had to go through, the water has to go through 10 different types of rocks. Uh, why is that uh, significant? Well, this this goes back to the question you asked earlier about our original hypothesis, and that um, Tim mentioned that um, the, the the spring shed around Boiling Springs, um, the outflow is seven times more is greater than you can calculate from the from the watershed itself, and so we knew that it had to be coming from outside the watershed, and that's when we started looking at fractures at at bedrock fractures as a conduit for this flow. Now, traditional hydrological models consider bedrock fractures, but not on the extent that we're looking at them. And our hypothesis was that uh, this groundwater flow can move through fractures in bedrock a long distance in, an, in, a, in a faster manner than it can through traditional aquifer-type systems. And so that was our original hypothesis that we were testing, and we're continuing to test. And what Jake's model that he came up with, what, you know, starting with that observation that he made in, in, in the, uh, at the bubble, was that uh, at serendipitously at the same time that the NASA put out uh, their global precipitation monitoring network, which is a satellite network, and they started publishing that data. And we learned about it, and Jake contacted them, and they were able to get the raw data from them. And by comparing this NASA satellite data, uh, which is global in scale, uh, and the, the, the cell dimensions for each uh, segment of this uh, precipitation monitoring is about 10 by 10 kilometer uh, cell. That's about 6 by 6 mile mm-hmm. uh, gradient uh, globally around the world. And so if we knew that we could match where it was raining based on NASA's data to the pressure uh, data that Jake was getting from, from the spring that we could come up with an idea about where the recharge area was for the spring. And and it, it worked out quite beautifully. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about the, the rocks and uh, the importance of this research in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute's team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians' assistants, and rehabilitation specialists, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. 
Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about a discovery by a team from Franklin and Marshall College at the bubble at Boiling Springs. It has to do with uh, groundwater flow. We're going to talk more about uh, the importance of that in just a moment. Our guest today, Robert Walter, Associate Professor of Geoscience. Tim Beidel, Adjunct Assistant Professor of Geoscience, both at Franklin and Marshall College. And Jake Longenecker, a student researcher at FNM, who played a major role in this discovery. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, one 800 729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Also on Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. You know, we have had, uh, you know, our, our audience listening for the past 15 minutes and saying, you know, this is, you know, really cool that uh, you've made this discovery, changed thinking on this, but why is it important? I'll take a stab at that one. I, it's actually one of the most important parts of this uh, of this study. Um, understanding where the recharge area is for a spring or a well uh, is incredibly important in terms of protecting uh, the water quality in that spring or well. So this is really goes uh, to to the heart of of that that issue, and it's often extremely difficult and or laborious uh, to to do the scientific analysis necessary to understand. Uh, where the recharge area is for a spring uh, to understanding where uh, uh, the, the, the outflow of that spring, where that water is coming from. And the method that we've developed and published in this paper uh, goes a long way to making uh, streamlining and making that information easier to get and more readily acceptable. Something else that, uh, like one of the odor overriding issues in this whole thing, is that uh, fresh water... I don't want to say it's hard to come by nowadays, but we still, I mean, we know, you said you had a global, you know, this information from NASA that was global on the flow of uh, precipitation and uh, groundwater, uh, that there are many parts in the world where there is not e easy access to groundwater. Yeah. Does this help at all? Absolutely. I mean, th this is really the, the backstory here to all this. And the reason that Tim and I, for the last uh, 10 years or, or more, uh, have been very interested in groundwater globally and we think that this method uh, can really help us in terms of exploration for groundwater in areas of the world where um, it, it's, it's vastly needed, right? Um, either where there, it's, uh, there might be contamination or it's just um, a resource that is overutilized. In what way? Um, it, it really helps us to highlight, um, once we understand where the recharge area is, and we can, if connecting the dots, understand the pathway from the recharge to the to the discharge point, uh, we can explore for groundwater resources more carefully. Mm -hmm. And uh, it gives us a sort of a leg up in terms of understanding uh, how to go about exploring for uh, deep groundwater uh, resources that might not otherwise have have uh, crossed our radar screen, so to speak. We have an email here from Tom and Carlisle who ask, if the groundwater is coming from Maryland, what's the transit time? Would this also explain why there was no significant rise in outflow or temperature change during Hurricane Agnes in 1972? That is, that's exactly it. The, uh, the transit time, we don't know, but we know that it's going to be some, uh, it's going to be more than six months because one of the sensors we have in the bubble is a temperature sensor. We track the temperature, and the temperature varies very slowly. It, it does change very slowly, and it does it seasonally, but it's exactly six months out of phase. So the water coming out of the bubble in the summer is colder, and in the winter months we get warmer water. So what's happening is the cold winter precipitation from down near the Maryland border is coming out the next summer or maybe a year and six months. We don't know exactly. But be, this this temperature being out of phase with the actual season at the bubble means the water's coming from pretty far away, and it's taking a long time to get there. So what Jake saw that day and what we're seeing with our pressure sensor isn't the actual water from down near the Maryland border arriving from the recent rainstorm. We're seeing a piston effect. It's like pushing on the back end of a syringe. The rain falls down near Maryland and charges up this fractured rock aquifer, and water comes squirting out at the bubble. But that water that's falling, let's say it rains down there today, a nice warm summer thunderstorm, that warm water is going to come out of the bubble 
next winter or maybe the following winter. We don't know. But this is exactly why the bubble wouldn't react quickly to to a very strong rainstorm like, say, uh, a hurricane. Hmm. So, I mean, is there an actual... Obviously, once the water has arrived there and it, it is there, sun comes down, temperature here in, in Pennsylvania has an, uh, an impact on that. But is there a difference in temperature that can be felt by, the, like, say, the human body who decides you know, to go in swimming or whatever? Uh, you can ask the human body who goes in there swimming <laughs> all, all right, the time. Okay. <laughs> uh, so because of that seasonal fluctuation, um, there's a remarkable uh, steadiness to the temperature in the bubble. And that's what I was getting at. Yeah, I thought there would be. Like what? Degrees Celsius, about 13 degrees Celsius. All right, Fahrenheit. Uh, Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit uh, about 54. Um, and, and seasonally, it only varies about, about 0.2 degrees Fahrenheit, which I'm not sure anyone who can feel that. So, no, you, you, you can't actually feel the difference in temperature. So you really do need these sensors that can measure down to a hundredth, a thousandth of a degree. Yeah. Well, see, that's uh, spring water. You know, everyone always thinks, oh, spring water is cooler than, you know, and I guess this is an example of that. It is. Yeah. Jake can tell you that no matter what time of year you go in there, it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds that way. Yeah. 56. Uh, I, I, that, that surprised me. I thought a little bit higher higher yeah. than that. What about, the, you know, Bob, you would mention that, uh, you know, one of the things that you're studying is, you know, how the, with the water being clean and to make sure that it is not uh, polluted or contaminated. Spring water, again, mo- so, so, much, so many of us want to drink spring water because it is more pure. It is clean, no chemicals, that kind of thing. How clean is this water? Quality of water, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, the water quality at the spring is, is quite good. Actually, um, we've not done a, a thorough chemical analysis of it, but I know that the, I, th- I think the, the town of Boiling Springs itself uh, measures it uh, periodically. And uh, as far as I know, it's it's good, you know, Pennsylvania spring water. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like a bottle on, you know, a label on a bottle. We have a, an email here from Robert in Camp Hill. It says, wanted to raise the point of there being the possibility that there are multiple sources for the water. Yes, almost certainly there are. There's a there's kind of a base flow year round, and these pressure pulses that we see or these sudden rises are kind of superimposed on top of that. So there is the the water the water is coming probably from multiple places. Some of it is locally derived. It is falling coming from right within the watershed. But the the surprising thing about this and what we've learned by comparing the outflow from the spring to the NASA satellite precipitation data is there's at least a component coming from about 50 miles away. So that doesn't mean that all of it is, but there is at least a component that is crossing these 10 different rock formations and somehow getting under South Mountain and feeding the bubble. Let's talk about those those rock formations. What kind of rock are we talking about? Uh, it's a really exciting question. I really appreciate it. Um, for, from a geological perspective, to go from... Uh, southern, uh, near the, the, the Maryland border, come up past the city of York, come through uh, the, the, the Gettysburg Basin and underneath South Mountain. We go through um, uh, ancient metamorphic rock. We go through uh, much younger sedimentary rocks of the Gettysburg Basin, 200, uh, 180 million year old rocks, into the you know, the quartzites of South Mountain, which are Cambro-Ordovician in age, you know, 600 you know, to 500 million years ago, and then into the uh, the limestone of the Epler Formation. Uh, Tomstown, I think. It's, but it's Ordovician. Right. It's, yeah. right. We believe you. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's complicated. Yeah. It goes through all those different rock types and then emerging at the, at the spring. What, are there some that are more difficult than others to uh, traverse? Absolutely. There are, uh, in the Gettysburg Basin, uh, that formed at the time when uh, Africa had collided with North America, and when they separated again to form the, the modern Atlantic Ocean, they first started to separate in what's what we call the Gettysburg Basin. So the, the continent started to break apart there, and as it broke apart... Uh, Molten rock welled up from below and made these diabase dikes, these nearly vertical sheets of rock that are typically thought of as being quite impermeable. And in a lot of places they are, 
Uh, so one of the big surprises is that somehow the water is making it through some of these diabase dikes. And I think it's got to be because of fractures. They, yeah. need, to, they need to be broken. And the, the, the tectonic motions that Tim was talking about were first with the collision of Africa with North America that created the Appalachian Mountains, the, the modern Appalachian Mountains. That imposed a very uh, characteristic fracture pattern on the eastern United States. And then the splitting apart uh, during the Mesozoic, creating the, 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 the Atlantic Ocean, created a, it, it captured the, the, the weaknesses in that bedrock that were there from the, the prior tectonic event and accelerated those. So we've got fracture orientations that are uh, the result of both collision and extension, and those give us very characteristic orientations of fractures that we can use as predictive models for understanding this groundwater flow. So that really gets, in the nutshell, is, is why we started looking at boiling springs. You know, it's, when you said much younger, uh, <laughs> I have to admit that I didn't expect 160 million years when you, when you said that. Well, you're talking uh, to a bunch of geologists. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm worried about my age. <laughs> uh, something else that uh, I was curious about when uh, you were talking about, uh, and, and all three of you have mentioned this, the NASA satellite and the data that you used for, for that. Uh, wh why is that important, and uh, how do you continue to – I'm assuming you continue, you're going to continue studying this and use some of uh, what NASA has supplied to you. Uh, absolutely. The, the reason the satellite's important is because the, the, the day Jake was standing there and the spring rose and it was a sunny day – we knew that it had to have been raining somewhere, and how are we going to find that place? So Jake started scouring Pennsylvania for precipitation records, and they're really pretty sparse. You get them from airports. Uh, various scattered places have a rain gauge. But we needed to know where it was raining everywhere so that we could look for the place that was raining. And it turns out that uh, traditionally some of the places where much of the rain falls are not monitored. So uh, Bob and I believe that uh, many mountain ranges, you know, up in the mountains, nobody's got rain gauges up there. So we don't really know how much rain might be falling. But this NASA Global Precipitation Monitor satellite uh, system tells us everywhere on the planet where it's, well, except for the, the North and South Pole, but nearly everywhere it tells us when it's been raining. So in a half, 10 by 10 kilometer block, 6 by 6 miles, Every half an hour, every 30 minutes, we know how much rain fell in that little square. And we have it for the whole planet. So it's, a, it's just an incredible resource. When we discovered this, it was, it was amazing that two months before Jake made this observation at the bubble, NASA had just put this satellite constellation in orbit, and the data were just coming out at that time. So the, the timing of it was, yeah, was, was unbelievable. Yeah. Let's yeah. take a phone call from Devin in Washington. Devin, you're on the air. Hi, thank you very much for the, for the phone call. Uh, I'm just curious, what are the broader implications of this study on locating water resources and addressing water resources throughout the United States? And how are you going to broaden and expand this into uh, something beyond the bubble? Thank you very much for your call. That's a great question. Um, and it also gets at the heart of, of why we started this study in the first place. Um, if we can demonstrate uh, where a recharge area is, uh, f whether it's a spring or a well or uh, a lake or whatever, um, it really helps us with understanding uh, the, these groundwater resources which are being exploited ar around the world. And the United States is a great example. California, uh, we, we, everyone knows, just got uh, over a, a drought, a, ma a major drought, five-year drought. Which I never thought was going to happen. Right. I mean, it seemed like it was going to go right. on but, forever. But this, this yeah. is, I mean, this is a pattern in California. I mean, just because you know, it's raining now doesn't mean it's not going to be a drought in the future. So being able to understand where uh, recharge is occurring uh, gives us an opportunity to go into areas that are um, uh, under, under stress in terms of water security and to be able to locate uh, do, doing groundwater exploration, uh, going in and be able to um, find water uh, that are moving through these fracture-oriented fast paths um, that are completely underutilized in terms of our groundwater exploration models around the world. And in this way, we might be able to help uh, areas that are under uh, these, these water stresses, or whether it's the United States or globally. 
you know, whenever we talk about this, uh, the, one of the major issues that has to be addressed is climate change. And I don't know whether you've thought yeah. far enough ahead to to answer this question or not, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Uh, with the climate changing, what does that do to the model that you, you've discovered, and what does it do to groundwater overall? Well, the... The, the the global water balance you know tells us that that oceans will evaporate they'll create precipitate uh, 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 moisture in the atmosphere that'll fall back as rain and that rain when it comes out onto the land moves either by surface runoff or through infiltration and so understanding where it's going to rain in the future uh, with respect to global warming and we you know that the, the models are um, are, are pretty clear that some parts of the world are going to get drier, but some parts of the world are also going to get wetter. Uh, but knowing where that where it's raining, we can understand this recharge phenomena, which will really help us in terms of f- future global climate change, uh, these predictive models for understanding where to explore and drill for water resources that uh, we would not really have that information until we had this uh, the, the data that Jake and, and Tim and I have been uh, yeah. coming up with. Dr. Bender, you look like you wanted to add something. Yeah, and an, an example of this might be uh, there are areas in the Middle East where uh, down in the lowlands, there's very little water at the surface. Uh, if you dig a well, you, you can't really get to water. But nearby, there might be a mountain range that is actually getting precipitation. And if we can quantify the amount of water that's falling into those mountains, we know it's going somewhere. If it's not coming down as rivers, you know, if it's not running off, it's infiltrating and it's getting into a, an aquifer, probably a fractured rock aquifer of some kind. So if we know the input, then we can begin to look at the geology and the fracture patterns and try and figure out how can we intercept this water? How can we find it? It's going to be down there somewhere. I have to admit, the very first time the word fracture was used on the program today, fracking, hydraulic fracking, was one of the things that came to mind. I know that we also have a lot of people in our listeners, excuse me, who are um, wondering when we're talking about rock fractures and well, now we are doing it not just here in Pennsylvania, but we've been doing it for some time now across the country and we're drilling for oil and, and natural gas, the, the minerals. Does this change anything when we're fracturing some of the rock, some of what's underground? That's a, that's a really great question. And I, I would just like to back up for a moment and say that that often uh, fracking, uh, that this kind of process is referred to as unconventional petroleum um, resources, right? Because they're uh, they're going in and hydraulically fracturing rock to extract that that petroleum resource. We kind of refer to our groundwater exploration using these fractures as uh, unconventional groundwater exploration, because mm-hmm. uh, we're actually using some of the same technology that uh, oil and gas industry is using to explore for oil and gas, we're using those same technologies to explore for this, this deeper fractured groundwater flow. Uh, to directly answer your question is that, um, y- yes, this opens up uh, uh, possibilities, uh, new understandings for how uh, contamination may occur, cross-contamination may occur from hydraulic fracturing events into deep groundwater uh, circumstances, right? So. Uh, I don't want to go out on a limb here and say it's going to be you know a bad all all around. I just uh, open up the possibility that we need to look at deeper groundwater fracture flow, and particularly in areas like the Marcellus Shale of Pennsylvania, uh, where a lot of this is going on. Wh- what are the implications for uh, cross contamination with with aquifers well, in the give region? Give me some examples. I mean, we're there's a lot of speculation yeah. in, in your answer, but what are you what are you concerned about? Um, well, I'm concerned about the, the the nature of the fractures themselves. We we know that the the, fra- the rocks in this region are highly fractured uh, due to the tectonic events that we talked about earlier, and these happen on on multiple scales. We call it a fractal scale, so that the the geometry of these fractures go from the from the micro scale up to the mega scale, and um, they're they're connected. Uh, and in fact, what we're showing. Uh, by the study is that these minute fractures are connected over great distances, 40, 50 miles, maybe even more. All right, And so it opens up this possibility of uh, needing to look at uh, more thoroughly the, the scientific evidence for uh, what's happening in the, in the hydraulic fracturing areas with respect to groundwater. Take one last uh, phone call here. Fran is in Hummelstown. Fran, you're on the air. Okay, thank you. Hey, great show. Um, good information. 
I used to live near the bubble. I live in Hummelstown now, but before that, I lived up in the State College area, which also has a lot of that limestone spring creek nature. The only comment I wanted to make was a word of caution. Scott said something earlier about the great quality of spring water. When I lived up in State College and spent a lot of time hiking around in the valleys and mountains, I realized that a lot of farmers use sinkholes as dumps, and they're throwing dead animals in them, shingles, building material, whatever, and those are ultimately connected into those aquifers, you know, so it becomes kind of a garbage uh, teacup. <laughs> so I'm just, you know, a word of yeah. caution to no, that is, is don't, don't take the water quality for granted because it's coming out of the spring. Well, Fran, you put a picture in my mind that I didn't want to have, but I'm glad you called <laughs> in. Thank you very much. No, he's, he's got an excellent, excellent point, in, particularly in these, we call them karst systems, or in limestone that has solution cavities, caves. The water can travel very great distances relatively fast with almost no natural filtration. So and and of course, holes in the ground have always been a great place to put whatever you're trying to get rid of. And so, it, uh, Fran is absolutely correct that uh, karst springs, limestone springs, are particularly vulnerable to contamination. They are they may look lovely and feel nice and cold and clear, but you you never really quite know what's in them. And, and it really highlights one of the main points of our paper is in terms of watershed protection. You might not know. If you're a farmer or an industrial activity, you know, 50 miles south and east of Boiling Springs, that what you do in the landscape there might affect the water quality mm. of Boiling Springs. Gentlemen, congratulations on uh, your discovery, your finding, and I'm sure we'll hear much more about it. Our guest today, Dr. Robert Water, Associate Professor of Geoscience. Dr. Tim Bechtel, Adjunct Assistant Professor of Geoscience, Franklin Marshall College. And Jake Longenecker, a student researcher at FNM. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. More than 4,600 Pennsylvanians died of drug overdoses last year. Rural areas of the state have been hit hard during the opioid crisis that often starts as use of prescription medications and moves on to heroin. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro announced last week that his office is making 300,000 deactivation and disposal pouches available in 10 mostly rural counties. And that's where I'll start our conversation with uh, Pennsylvania's Attorney General Josh Shapiro. General Shapiro, welcome to the program. Good to be back with you. Thanks for having me. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, let's start by talking about these 300,000 uh, disposal, um, or excuse me, the uh, deactivation disposal pouches across the state. What's the idea behind them? Well, Scott, I, well, if I could just set the table for just a moment, and you said this in the run-up, um, we've lost over 4,600 Pennsylvanians last year to the heroin and opioid crisis. That's 13 Pennsylvanians a day. And I think what people need to understand is 80% of heroin addicts start with a legal prescription drug, something like an Oxycontin or a Percocet or something like that. And the reality is 70% of them get that initial pill from a friend or relative or something sitting around in a medicine cabinet. So we've been working very, very hard to get those medications out of the medicine cabinet and have them destroyed. Last year alone, um, the attorney general's office, the DEA and and district attorney's uh, offices around the Commonwealth were able to, you know, to, to throw away or to collect um, 26 tons of prescription drugs. In the first six months of this year, we've collected 22 tons. Wow. One of the challenges we have in rural Pennsylvania is that it's hard to access a drop box. Um, and where those drop boxes are, oftentimes are 45 minute or an hour long drive. And the reality is most people are busy. They don't have time to drive an hour to throw away the pills that they have laying around in their medicine cabinet. So we're going straight to them. We're actually bringing the fight right to them and asking them to join us in this fight. By distributing 300,000 drug deactivation pouches through local pharmacies in these rural communities in 12 counties across Pennsylvania. And basically the way they work is you can take up to 45 pills, dump them in a little bag. It's got almost like a little carbon filter in there, something like what you'd see in a fish tank. Um, Pour a little warm water in, shake it up, and you can throw it away. It's safe for the environment, and it deactivates these otherwise dangerous pills. And it has these people help us 
in the battle against the heroin and opioid epidemic. You know, that's, we were just in, uh, talking in our last segment about water quality. You know, it used to be that many people, when they were finished with the prescription medication, would just toss it in the toilet. And we don't want that to happen nowadays. So that's why that's part of the reason this is such an important issue. Absolutely. And look, Scott, you know, I know we're not here to talk about the environment, but obviously, you know, I'm an environmentalist and I work very hard to protect the the quality of people's air and water in Pennsylvania. And so we don't want people flushing these pills down the toilet. It's very, very dangerous. Um, And we also don't want them sitting around the medicine cabinet. So this way, when you go to your local pharmacy, whether you're in Indiana County or or somewhere else uh, in rural Pennsylvania, you'll be able to get one of these deactivation pouches from the pharmacist. They're free. They'll give them to you throw your pills in there, put a little water in, shake it up, and throw it away in a regular trash can. As you mentioned, this is 12 predominantly rural counties, but for other areas of the state, there are drop-off points, and sometimes it's not well publicized where they are, but uh, often it will be a police station or something like that. So uh, Pennsylvania is not in these these 12 counties. Have to be looking for that. Maybe even call their police department or, I don't know, is there somewhere else they can call to find out where they could drop them off? Yeah, absolutely. And and I know, look, some of your listeners in Dauphin and Lancaster County, you're going to say, wait a second, how come we're not getting these pouches? Um, well, first off, it, it's not as though there's not a, a risk of uh, heroin, and o- heroin overdose deaths. There's quite a few in, in Dauphin and Lancaster. But there are a number of these drug drop boxes, and they tend to be in municipal halls and police departments. You can go on my website, attorneygeneral.gov, for more information on that. Uh, or call my office, or call your local county um, officials. But it's important that um, we take this fight everywhere in Pennsylvania and not ignore certain parts of rural uh, Pennsylvania that that have been ignored in the past when it comes to dealing with this epidemic. General, that is one of the things that makes this, one of the characteristics of this, what is referred to as the opioid crisis, is that it is hitting rural areas particularly hard. And I've said this many times when we've talked about this issue on, on the program. You know, heroin used to be abused only in, or at least thought to be anyway, in uh, inner cities, the big city. It is really hitting rural Pennsylvania and other rural areas of the country hard. Oh, without a doubt. Look, I travel all over the Commonwealth each and every week. And this crisis knows no municipal boundaries, black, white, brown, rich, poor, male, female. It doesn't matter. It's hitting everyone everywhere. And we've got to do something about it. Look, I I recognize these deactivation pouches are just one piece of my battle uh, against the heroin and opioid epidemic, which I've said is my number one priority as your attorney general. We've got to do other things. That's why um, we've stepped up dramatically um, the number of arrests we've made of drug dealers across Pennsylvania. You know, I've been in office a little over six months. We have, um, on average, arrested three drug dealers a day every single day I've been in office. We also recognize that there's too much diversion of prescription drugs. That is when a doctor or someone like that illegally gives out these pills or gives out the pills for illegal purposes. We actually doubled the number of diversion arrests in the first quarter of 2017 when I was in office versus the first quarter of 2016 before I took office. We also see the pharmaceutical companies as having to play a major role in, um, in helping us deal with this. Look, they've played a major role in creating uh, this epidemic um, by the proliferation of these dangerous opioid painkillers. And that's why uh, I announced a couple of weeks ago that Pennsylvania is one of the lead states in a massive bipartisan multi-state investigation into the opioid manufacturing industry. Furthermore, I think we need greater access to treatment. It's why I went to the insurance companies in Pennsylvania and challenged them to do more to make it easier for people to access treatment for the time they need and actually make it harder for these opioid painkillers to make their way out into the marketplace. It's why I've stepped up and worked with Democrats and Republicans in Congress to say whatever health care bill they ultimately pass please make sure to continue to have a guaranteed access to treatment under Medicaid. That is something that uh, we desperately need in order to treat Pennsylvanians who are suffering from addiction. So we're doing all of these things. Not one thing is going to ultimately help us deal with this crisis, but together and working together, I think we'll be able to make real headway. You brought up a couple of points I wanted to follow up on. Uh, You know, one thing we have heard 
this used to be an issue, you know, possession, drug usage, that was thought of as a law enforcement office, uh, or excuse me, a law enforcement issue only. And now, you know, hearing you, the state's top law enforcement officer, the attorney general, say, you know, basically you're saying we can't arrest our way out of this problem. Uh, so talk about that, if you will, because... Again, it wasn't very long ago that you would hear a police officer, you would hear an attorney general, a district attorney, and you would never hear anything about treatment. We've changed our thinking on this, haven't we? I've been saying this all along. And and look, I am honored to be the top law enforcement officer of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And I'm the first one to say that we cannot arrest our way out of this crisis. If we continue to arrest dealers at the high rate that uh, we are since I've taken office, And I do that every single day of my term for the next four, God willing, eight years. We still won't fully solve this crisis. We have to understand the difference between a drug dealer and someone who's violent and needs to be arrested and locked up for a long time and someone who's nonviolent, who's not dealing, who's suffering the disease of addiction and get them the treatment that they need through a combination of law enforcement working collaboratively to to arrest uh, the dealers and making sure the treatment is available and holding the pharmaceutical companies accountable, then I think we can make real progress. And I just think we have to be smart on crime. You can be tough on the dealers. You can be tough in breaking up these drug networks, and we are, but you can also be smart on crime, and that's what we're trying to do in the Attorney General's office. Let's take a phone call from Norman in Lancaster. Norman, you're on the air. Thank you. I, I understand the need for uh, having the, the disposal bag program for those counties where most of the abuse is going on, but I think it's a program that should be uh, throughout all the counties. I'd read about a year ago, supposedly the local pharmacies were supposed to have a, a similar sort of program, but for some reason that never actually got off the ground. Uh, you can go to your local pharmacy and they'll sell you a bag for five or ten bucks, which you can, you know, put your drugs in and mail them away for disposal. Uh, but for some reason, that free program they're supposed to have never took place. So I think it's a program that should be uh, mandatory and available at all counties. I'll take comments offline. Norman, thank you very much for your call. Norman, thank you for your call. Let me just tell you our thinking. We ordered 300,000 of these bags, and we wanted to get it into the areas that really had no other access points. I also want to be fiscally responsible and make sure that the dollars that are being used um, are being used wisely. And so that's why we've teamed up with the Pennsylvania Medical Society and the University of Pittsburgh to collect data on the usage of these bags and determine how effective they are and where they're most effective so that as we look to expand the program to other counties around Pennsylvania, we have data to back that up. So I appreciate your comment, uh, Norman, and we would like to see it expand, but I want to do it in a smart way. How much do they cost per bag? Uh, well, what we were able to do is get about 300,000, um, 50,000 of them were donated. The other 250 uh, cost under a million bucks, um, and they were paid for out of a specific fund that has to be used for this kind of drug treatment. It's actually not paid for with general fund revenues or general tax revenues, but rather paid for out of fines on DUI offenses. Then mm. I wanted to follow up on uh, something you had said previously, General. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the health care proposal that is in Congress right now. Uh, one of the areas that has gotten the most criticism and especially a, a lot of concern, and that is money coming from Washington for treatment of uh, drug users. Uh, right. Is that one of your major concerns? It is. I, I wrote a letter to um, bipartisan to all the members of Congress, as well as our two senators, Senators Toomey and, and Casey. And it just made the point that, look, I, I'm not it's not my job to go to Washington and make the sausage. Um, that's their job. I don't, I don't want that job. But it is my job to inform them is how some of their actions will affect our ability to deal with the number one public safety threat here in Pennsylvania, the heroin and opioid epidemic. And I was really pleased that um, when I wrote this letter to the members of the U.S. House, four Republican congressmen uh, broke ranks and actually voted against the bill. Several of them, including Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick from Bucks County, cited this issue as the reason why they voted no. I have also um, met with Senator Casey and Senator Toomey on the issue. 
Um, I think they both understand it. I have, you know, obviously some differences substantively with Senator Toomey on this, um, but I do appreciate uh, the fact that he recognizes this is a, a top priority. And I'm hopeful that um, if a final package ultimately does come before the Senate, it will maintain guaranteed access for treatment. There are lots of different numbers being thrown around in Washington in terms of how much money is going to be put in to dealing with the heroin and opioid epidemic. And I, I've heard that number increasing, but it's still not enough. And the most important point there is it's not guaranteed access to treatment. We have to maintain that. We can't pick winners or losers in this fight. Uh, General, we only have about 90 seconds left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. You know, every day we talk about this. In fact, I'm going to be talking about it tomorrow uh, with the Pennsylvania Cost Care Containment Council about uh, how hospitals are treating uh, opioid, uh, those uh, having the disease of opioid addiction uh, coming up on tomorrow's program. But, you know, it doesn't seem to get any better. Is there any reason for optimism? We're getting there. I, I would be optimistic about the fact that your law enforcement in Pennsylvania at the local, state, and federal level are sharing information and collaborating um, at, a, at a really, really terrific, in a really terrific way. And, um, it's making a difference. And I realize the public doesn't see a lot of what we do each day. A lot of what we do is obviously done privately um, and confidentially uh, for, for good reason. Um, but I can tell you that information sharing and that collaboration is really working and making a difference. We have fantastic partners at the FBI and DEA, U.S. Attorney's Office, District Attorney's Office, the state police and others, um, and we work really well together. I think you're also beginning to see a marked change in the way physicians um, think about prescribing. And so hopefully the, the fewer opioid painkiller prescriptions out there for people who don't need them, obviously some people do and they should continue to get access to it and use them responsibly. But I think that the attitude amongst doctors seems to be changing, and uh, I believe that that will have a, a positive impact. Look, things are not we, – we haven't topped off yet, I, I don't believe, um, before things start going down, but we are making progress. The treatment piece of this is critical. The disposal piece is critical, and that's where we need the public's health to stay engaged, stay engaged both fighting for policies that guarantee treatment and stay engaged in terms of disposing your unused drugs in your medicine cabinet. You can join us in this fight and make a real difference. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro. General Shapiro, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. As I mentioned, we will be talking about the opioid treatment in hospitals tomorrow, also using technology in the classroom. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org.